I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. Today, we're going to replay an episode that was released a while back. Uh, I found it fascinating. And uh, Frank Bayless has gone on to uh, exit his company for over $2 billion at the end of last year. Take a listen to the insights that Frank shared with us about his journey. Take care. Thank you for joining me on another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. I have a very prestigious guest this time around. I have uh, elevator Frank Bayless. And uh, this is the opportunity that I get to, to introduce our guest and the first thing I would say is he's one of the few that it's very, very easy if you want to do your own research because he's the first person I'm interviewing with a Wikipedia page. So you have the, you have the honorable prestige of, uh, of that title, you know, and, 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 you know, my opinion is if you have a Wikipedia page, you're a big deal. So Frank, you're a big deal. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> you know, just a, l- a little bit of background on, on, on Frank. And I know that we're going to go into a lot more detail on Frank's background, but Frank was elected in the riding of Pierre Fonts uh, Dollard in the House of Commons uh, from 2015 to 2019. So it'll be interesting to hear his take on you know, the political scene in Canada, I guess at a high level. Frank is the president of Bayless Medical from 89 to 2015, uh, an incredible company that I know intimately well, uh, which we will definitely talk about. Uh, he received the Entrepreneur of the Year Award from EY in 2011, producer with the film production house Walk of Fame Entertainment, he is the chair of Canada United Kingdom Interparliamentary Association. He was awarded the Queen Elizabeth II the, the, the Diamond Jubilee Medal. And I can keep going, but I think it's going to embarrass Frank, so I'm going to stop there. And Frank, thank you so much for, for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Alan. Like uh, we were just talking before we started the podcast, I really enjoyed listening to your other podcasts, the amazing guests you've had on. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. So, so Frank, for those that, that, that don't know you the way that I do, you know, I like to start at the beginning. You know, I gave I gave the synopsis of kind of your your pedigree and your experience, but you know, how did you how did you get here? I know that uh, you know you come from uh, you know an eclectic background, um, so maybe talk about you know what got you to Canada in the first place, and you know, kind of that early life and and what it looked like for you. Well, you know, your questions about being an entrepreneur or not, and the the title of your thing, Entrepreneur's DNA and that, I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit. And I've always had an interest in business. When I was a little, very, very young boy, I can't even remember how old, I had stickers and I had the other kids in the neighborhood selling my stickers. And my mom said, where'd you get this money? And I said, these are my, my salespeople selling the stickers. And I would sell them for like five cents and they would get a penny. And my mom said, you're, 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 being too, you're not being generous enough. Those are great margins. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I remember that as my very first business venture. I, I had a newspaper route back then. Kids delivered newspapers. So I had a newspaper route. I had a morning route. And then I had an evening route. And then I had a route that I bought that was in an apartment building because that was the really good route because you could make a lot of money just dropping big papers in front of someone's apartment. In high school, I had a uh, business painting. Uh, a lot of us did that, a uh, business painting, but we also did a lot of carpentry tiling. We did pretty well anything that anybody asked us. And this was pre-internet days. But when we were doing something, my partner, it was called B&B, Brennan and Bayless, or Bayless and Brennan, depending on who you ask, me or him. <laughs> 
But anything someone asked us, can you do a bathroom tiling? He'd say, yes, we've done it many times. And I'd walk out and say, why'd you say that? I, we have no idea. And he goes, I've seen my brother do it once. We know we're going we're gonna to be fine. So. And, and YouTube didn't even exist. So you couldn't even learn that. on the, uh, you know, on that. On yeah, the way. We, were, we were flying by the feet of our pants. But I just say that to say that I was always interested in business. That's been something I've had in my background from the get-go. Did that come from, you know, you having a good example of that in your, in your own parents? I, I don't know the story of your parents. So that's what you saw? It's a very good question because, you know, they say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So I'm educated as electrical engineer. And guess what my father is? Electrical engineer. But I'm truly a businessman and a politician more than an engineer. My dad was really a classic engineer, really technical, very knowledgeable in that sense. And my mother was a nurse. But my mother was a really outgoing person and someone that took on everything. And in fact, the company Bales Medical is something my mother started. I did not start it. A lot of people confuse that and think I'm, I'm the starter. Not only that, when she started it, I joined her. It was just her. Then she was running it out of the house. And then I joined her. And then Chris joined us a year later. But she started. And when I did join her, she, she was very clear to tell me, this is not named after you. And, you know, this is my mother. This is named after your father. And if you ever do anything to embarrass this name, I'll deal with you. <laughs> I said, yes, mom. <laughs> so I have the background education of my father, and I run a business that was started by my mother. So, Frank, I want to go back. You said something super interesting that I have not heard before. You said that, you know, I am a business person and a politician. What does it mean to you to say I'm a politician? That's Because, like, I, I've never heard someone describe themselves as that. Because, and the reason I ask that is because, you know, sometimes in, in the business world, it's like, you know, if you're playing the political game in the business sense of that, right, it's looked upon as potentially even a negative thing, right? Yeah. There's no question that, you know, saying you're a politician is probably one up from being, um, you know, what's the old, I won't say a joke against that. <laughs> politicians that but i uh, know I'm, I'm proud to have served the country i think it's a it's a wonderful honor to have been elected and to go to ottawa and i encourage anybody any of your listeners anybody that's interested in that take that challenge on and to try and make our country a better place and i still have interest in politics i was always involved in the behind the scenes i got elected in 2015 i chose not to run again in 2019 but i was always involved for me personally, it was with the Liberal Party of Canada. However, I can tell you, having been in Ottawa, that there's wonderful people in the Conservative Party, the NDP Party, the Green Party. Uh, we're all the same, you know, we're all the same. And, and honestly, 80% of the people that go to Ottawa, I'd say go there with good faith and good faith to make our country a better place. We may disagree on minor things, but they're really minor. And 20% are too partisan. They're over-the-top partisan, and, and they're in all parties. And I think that uh, one of the things I was trying to change is I think they have too much of run of the place. And I think that that's in some ways giving politics and politicians a bad name. But I don't subscribe to that. I think most people that go in there are very good people. And I'm proud to say that I was a politician. You know, it's interesting you speak about the 80-20. And, and Frank, if you've listened to my podcast, you know I'm going to jump around because I'm super ADD. But I'm a bit cynical because when you, when you look at the, the, the media It'd be very easy to assume that 80% of people are on the extreme left and right and only 20% of moderates, but you're probably not wrong. I mean, like, it's probably the exact opposite that 80% are moderates, but it's the ones on the, on the extreme left and right that make all the goddamn noise. That's the problem. Exactly. And there's a reason for that. And the news is trying to get a rise out of you because they know if we get out, if, if we watch the 11 o'clock news, they go, no, not much happened today. Good night, everybody. And they, 
they're not selling papers and they're not they're not selling advertisements so they and do things to rile you up and unfortunately i can i have seen this is that a lot of what happens is if you're just middle of the road you're not going to get seen or known or heard because they're looking for the extremes and so if you just watch the news you think the world's an extreme place and everybody's crazy out there and, and that but that's just not that's just not the reality of it and honestly so many times i've read a news story and go well yeah, they put an interesting spin on that, but that's not actually what happened at all, you know, <laughs> so. You know, when it comes to U.S. politics, I like to read CNN and Fox News, and I know the truth is somewhere in the middle there. I don't know exactly know where it is, but it's probably, like, it's amazing to me that you, you can open these two credible news sites, right? I'll use it in quotations because some people will disagree with that. And they talk about the exact same story from completely different viewpoints. Yes. I think you're wise to do that because it gives you different perspectives and you're you're not like you're getting into your own bubble, which we, we all tend to do with time. So I think that's a very smart thing to do is to listen to uh, different perspectives. Look, if you take Canada, for example, in politics, no one gets up and says, I'm against seniors or no one. No politician says, I want to stick it to the students or I don't like to help families or I don't want to create jobs or I want to destroy the environment. We all want the same things, 95% of what we want. And we may disagree what's a priority or, or where do we put the emphasis. But the majority of us, we're almost in agreement with 95% of what we want to do. Even the Republicans, Democrats in the states that seem to be at war all the time, they both want what's right for their country. They may disagree on how to get there. But I don't think anybody says, I want to stick it to the Americans or I want to stick it to Canadians. I, I didn't see that at all. I did see some people that were like, ask what party you were from before they ask what you thought. And that's the problem. Yeah, tribalism is a dangerous thing. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a very dangerous thing. So well, politics is an interesting one. And it's, a, it's one, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty apolitical. I've gotten more and more political as I've, as I've kind of gotten older. And I think it's just as a, a function of, of caring about the future of my children as opposed to living in the moment for myself right now. But it is, it's, there's, there's no right answer, unfortunately. So Frank, I want to take a you know, go back to that initial, you know, joining your, your, your mother's business, make, make that very clear. And, uh, you know, how was that? I mean, how, how, how was that relationship? I have to make that clear because if my dear mother, she passed away three years ago, but if she was listening and if she's probably listening somewhere else, she would be yeah. here to tell you, listen, let me make sure you know, he didn't start yeah. but my mother was a, it was a wonderful, phenomenal woman, truly. She started the business, not my dad, it's her. And uh, what happened was there was a doctor in France that was moving to Quebec and he needed someone to buy this special catheter from France and bring it to Quebec, import it. And it, back then it was French francs, sell it to the hospital Canadian dollars. And it was a very unique product. And they asked my mom, she put her hand up. She said, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. And that was the genesis of her business. I graduated from University of Waterloo in 1986 and toured around till the beginning of 87. I came back and I said to mom, you know, so you're working out of the house. Let's let's try and make a go of this business. And my mom says, no, uh, you're not joining me. You don't know anything. She says, you go out and get a job for two years and then come back and talk to me. And I said, okay, that was my mom, by the way. So I, I went out and I got a job working for Mr. Labry at Labry Medical because I knew in the back of my mind I wanted to go join my mom. And I worked there for two years to the day almost. And, and I left and, I, and when Mr. Labry was a mercurial a man, but a very interesting man. And he was a very successful man. And I learned a lot just watching him. And they offered me more money. I was right out of school. I had a company car, an office. I had seven people working for me and they offered me more money to stay. I said, no. And I, and I left for no money. That was the pull. 
and I went and joined uh, my mother. And then a year later, my partner, Chris Shaw, it was working for Northern Telecom and he was doing very good in his career there. He left too. And, and the three of us started this journey together to, to build the business up. You know, I know about your relationship with Chris. Uh, I know Chris Shaw very well, as you know. One of, the, one of the things I really wanted to ask you was what have you learned about picking a good partner? Because you clearly have a good partnership. And I, I hear horror stories about not picking the right partner. Elon, that is an excellent question. I'm really glad you asked that one because if you recall, I said I went into business in high school with my friend Jacques Brennan, B&B. Brennan and Bayless or Bayless and Brennan. Anyhow, we we're best of friends, but I could not work with the guy. I could not work with the guy. That was great. I learned that lesson in high school. And I said, okay, just because you're really good friends, and I see a lot of business people make this mistake. They get along great with someone and they think they'll get along good with them in a business, and it's not the same case. When Chris and I met at university, we both went to University of Waterloo together, our personalities complemented each other. We brought different things to the table, and I I won't say that I picked him, but in the back of my mind, I knew I was gonna go into business, and he had that interest, and I had the interest, and we were complementary, and it worked. But just because you're great friends with someone doesn't mean you're gonna have a great partnership with them. And it is like a lot of people, it's like a marriage. Like a lot of people say that, you know. And 50% of them get it wrong, right? So so how, how do you get it right? What have you learned about getting it right? When you talk about, I mean, you gloss over, it's complimentary. What does that mean, complimentary? And how do you assess it? I'll give you a good example. I'm probably more risk-taking than Chris is. Chris is more methodical than I am, but we balance each other. So like, I'll come to Chris with another idea and he'll say, if you give me one more idea, I'll punch you in the mouth because <laughs> you've given me 10 other ideas and maybe one of the 10 is good, but I don't want to do it. I'm working on this one. So he tempers my excitement to try and do too many things, but I think I pull him maybe in a more uh, risk-taking. So we balance each other. For example, he's far more technical than I was. So he was able, when we decided to start developing our own products, he was really successful at that. I wasn't, but I was maybe more successful going out and selling that product, balancing ourselves like that, you know? I've read a lot of studies that say that partnerships do better than sole proprietors and typically do better than like a trio, right? Like what have you learned about that partnership dynamic that has led, I mean, you guys are incredibly successful and have been for many years. What about that do you think works so well? And why is that like, why have there been studies that have kind of shown that that works well? If you're on the same wavelength with your partner and you want the same fundamental things, and this was a challenge I had even when there was the trio, there was at first myself, Chris, and my mother. My mother eventually retired and we bought out her shares and that, but it was always her baby. And we learned then continue her spirit runs through the business to this day. But she wanted something different. My mother was a, a nurse. She loved being in a hospital and she loved, she was an operating nurse, which was a company or a team of seven or eight people working on a project together. I wanted a big company. Chris wanted a big company. So we would clash. We would clash. And I didn't understand that at, at the time, but what her goals were for the business were not my goals and what her dreams and aspirations were. And they're not right or wrong, but if you're not aligned with your partner on something fundamental like that, then you're not going to work. And then when you become aligned and you find someone that's aligned and wants to achieve the same things you do, that's the foundation which you build upon. And then there's your trust. I always used to joke because Chris was a very 
wise, strong with his money. And I always used to joke, you know, if Chris, if my partner ripped me off, it's okay because he wouldn't go to Vegas and spend the money. He'd hide it somewhere and I just have to find him and get my money back. But <laughs> I'm joking there because Chris is a very honest guy, but we were the right balance. And I think we wanted the same things. We wanted to big, build a big enterprise and we were driven to do that. And so we both were pulling and rowing in the same direction all the time. I think what happens, a lot of people are rowing in different directions then it doesn't work. What does a process look like? I'm a massive believer in articulating and writing down goals because it's a really good way of making sure that you really are on the same page. Do you guys have a process that you go through? Is it quarterly? Is it yearly? Like what is that, what is that process of aligning vision goals look like in Bayless today? So your, your idea of writing things down is amazing. It's such a such a true thing. I started doing that. I took I, I'm always trying to take these seminars learning and then I took one years ago and said, write them down or they don't exist. So I wrote them down and lo and behold, we met those goals. Okay, well, I better write new ones. And then I realized, okay, we met those ones. And then I write something that way over the top, never get there. And then we got there. So I think writing down your goals, putting them in concrete in that way is critically important. And Chris and I have always discuss these things on a, on, a, on a level, but I don't think we ever wrote them down together. I wrote them down for myself and the business was just driven there. And then as we got bigger, we became more formal. We formalized our processes and then we brought on a board of directors. And then that forced us, once you have a board of directors, because Chris and I are the two shareholders of the company. So we were reluctant to bring on a board of directors or advisors because normally the shareholders put into place the directors who hire the managers, but we were both the managers of the business and the shareholders. But I said, if we're going to bring on directors, we better be willing to listen to them and not just override them because we're the shareholders or else we're wasting their time and our time. And I think by bringing them on, that was really a smart thing to do. And, and that's one of the, I've made so many mistakes in business. And another guy had told me years ago, Frank, get a board of directors. It's amazing. And I thought, I don't need no board of directors. Forget that. I'm not doing it. And this guy said, no, no, you should really get it. And I was completely wrong and that guy was completely right. So if anybody's listening and thinking, should I need a board of directors or not, get one for sure. Absolutely. I know a lot of people like you, you know, for, for, for myself, I've slowly come to the other side of the camp where I do think it's important. But for those that, that were like you and said, ah, I don't need a board of directors, can you convince them? Why, why do you say that? There's so many things that I've learned in your other podcasts give great advice. And I, it made me reflect, what advice could I give people? You know, and then you don't want to go all over the map and this and that. But I can tell you that at first I wanted to be the entrepreneur. I believed in the myth of the self-made man, which is absolutely a myth. Okay. Anybody that gets up and says, I did this, I did this, I did this, throw that, that anything they say, throw it in the garbage. There's no such thing as a self-made man. I didn't start the company. My mom did. I didn't get this education for free. My dad helped me and my parents brought me up, gave me everything. I have a partner. I have so many people along the way that have helped me. So it's just absolutely ridiculous to say that I'm a self-made man. But I had bought into this. I had bought into this narrative. And so I wanted to do it all so that I could have all the glory. And over time, I realized all it did was make me make a lot of mistakes I could have avoided if I just spoke to someone else, if I just asked someone else. So then I started realizing, wow, why don't I just avoid these mistakes instead of saying I had the honor of doing <laughs> these mistakes that someone else smarter could have said, Look, don't do that. It's not going to work. So if you get rid of that myth and you say, look, I just want to be successful and I need help to be successful, 
then you can start listening to a lot of people. And there's so many people that can guide you. And you know, Elon, I'm sure you can in your business. Someone gives you five minutes of advice, saves you a year of headaches. It's incredible. They say, don't do this because this, this is going to happen. You go, oh yeah, you're right. And you don't go down that path. So that would be, if you can avoid any mistake by learning from someone else, whether it's a board, whether it's your parents, your friends, a mentor, anyone that you can help you avoid a mistake, take it. And then if you finally, if you do make mistakes, own them. Own your mistakes or else you can't learn. That I think is the foundation for, for going ahead in anything. Yeah, look, there's no substitution for experience, for sure. And if you can learn from others' experiences, uh, it, it definitely is a leg up, for sure. I want to take go go back to Bayless for a second. And I know that when Bayless first started, you really started as a distribution business. And I had a discussion with you and we talked about this earlier. You know, you really morphed into more of a product business, an innovation business, a R&D-based business. Talk about that transition because I think that when a lot of entrepreneurs are in a business that's that's working and they, they, they kind of just continue down the path of doing what they've always done, what does the process look like? And what did that process look like for you guys transitioning to arguably, I mean, a completely different business? I mean, innovating and creating product is a very different thing than distribution. So would love to hear a little bit more about that, that experience and some of the lessons you learned along the way. So as my mom had started the business importing and reselling medical products, what happens in the, in the distribution business is you're really renting your sales force. And so across Canada, if you want to import a product, you have to have someone at least in Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, and you have to have someone that speaks French and someone speaks English. And if your volume of sales is, say, I'm going to just make a number, let's say it's a million dollars or two million dollars, it doesn't pay to put a manager in place and have three people and all that. So if you think the market's going to be below a certain amount, you go to a distributor. If you think the market's like 20 million, you go, we don't need a distributor. We're going to go direct. So we were operating in that range. And what we realized would happen is if we were really successful, we get a phone call and go, Hey, you guys did a great job. Thanks. We don't need you anymore. We're going to go direct or we'd help a small company out of the States, Silicon Valley startup. And then they call some, guess what? Uh, you know, GE just bought us or this other great big company, Phillips just bought us and, and, and their salespeople are going to take over now. So we realized if we stayed in this business, it's a seesaw effect. You go up to a certain size and then it falls down and you build it up in that. And we said, we want to have more control over our destiny. So one of the lessons I had learned. So we decided in the medical field, we're going to transition from being a distributor, take any profits we made and start reinvesting it into R&D. And I was an engineer and Chris was an engineer. And this first came to us again, it's not my, my mother had said to us many years ago, and she started importing this catheter for brain neuroembolization, very, very unique. And she, my mom said, we were having trouble with the, the French manufacturer. And she says, you and Chris are engineers, you guys should go develop one, develop your own catheter. So I went and talked to the doctor and there's like six people in North America that were doing this procedure. And he goes, Frank, this is a peanut business. It's like, it's not worth it, Matt. And I said, yeah. So I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stick with distribution. So sure enough, some other guys in Silicon Valley thought they'd make the next generation of the catheter. And, you know, a few years later, they sold, you'll like this number. They sold for 1.2 billion, not million, 1.2 billion. Yeah. So I learned a few lessons. So this there. was not a peanut business. <laughs> <laughs> no, because it was just in its infancy growing and a wave caught and they caught the wave and they sold like that. Now, I'm not saying we would have developed the catheters as good as them and we would have been as successful as them, but we were certainly ahead of them and we certainly could have done it. So I learned a lot of lessons there. I learned a lot of lessons there. I learned that doctors are amazing people, but not necessarily the best business people. 
I learned to listen to my mom again a bit more in business. And I learned that we're going to slowly transition to start making our own products because we have more control of our own destiny, our own lives. And we're engineers and we don't want to live this seesaw life of building it up, getting it sold under, up from underneath us and up and down. So that was a very conscious decision that Chris and I made. And we said, look, if we've had a good year or two, we're not going to go out and buy nice cars and all this. We're just going to plow that money back into the business. It clearly worked. I mean, I know that you've developed a few products that you've sold in the past and you, you continue to have uh, new products. One of the things that, that you guys are now involved with is uh, producing ventilators. So we'd love to hear about that experience. I mean, obviously it's, uh, you know, given the environment right now, it's, uh, it's, it's topical. Um, but, you know, what, what have you learned through that process? Because, you know, you, you guys are, are clearly experts in developing products, but I would imagine that not, not, not everything is as simple as it may sound. No, ventilator is an extremely complex medical device, and it's, a, it's a, what we call the highest order of regulatory controls on it, because if this doesn't work, someone dies. So if you put a pacemaker in, it doesn't work, someone dies. If I give you, say, a scalpel and it breaks, okay, it's not good, but no one's going to die. So uh, we took on this challenge. Obviously, I think what happened is when COVID came out, a lot of the countries around the world realized that they didn't have an industrial base to produce needed products for themselves. And there was unfortunately a lot of hoarding and some things happened where some countries refused to sell products and that. So this international supply chain got tied up. And I think the government made a smart move to say, look, we have to get masks made in Canada. We have to get personal protective equipment made in Canada. We need ventilators made in Canada so that we don't find ourselves in that position again. And so we were one of the three companies that, that stood up and met with the, the federal government. We did it under what you call ventilators for Canadians, B for speed. There was a group of entrepreneurs in Southern Ontario that came together and they started this, not us. They started the initiative of saying, let's build ventilators. And they were looking for someone to partner with. And they said, well, we need a medical device company I started thinking about it. Other people mentioned, should we stand up? And then they contacted us and said, look, we need help because we know how to make auto parts or um, we know how to make uh, consumer appliances, but we don't know how to make medical devices. And we really came together and partnered up, up with them. Ventilators for Canadians, a wonderful initiative and uh, very challenging, but very proud to be part of that initiative. What's the timeline for that initiative? Do we have a better idea as to when... Have you started shipping? Has it been, uh, have there been delays? And if so, what have you learned about why there were delays? Yeah, well, we knew going into this, what, what happened is normally so many ventilators say there's X number of ventilators made a year. And the supply chain, these are very, you need a lot of special valves that control the amount of air that will go into your lungs or not, that'll mix with the amount of oxygen the doctor wants to give you or not. If I put too little pressure into your lungs, you will not be able to breathe. If I overinflate your lungs, I'll just damage them. I could damage them permanently. There's a tremendous amount of things, medical sensors. Now, the problem, the challenge was everybody in the world wants these things too. So there's a tremendous race around the world and it's, it's fascinating. It's stressful. We're on the call with people from Ireland, people from Germany, people from France, people from China, people from Japan, United States, working to bring these pieces in that are, and then can this person make that part? And can we get this part here? An amazing a global supply challenge. We're moving forward with it. We had to get the product then approved, even though it's an emergency. Health Canada still has to go through a process of ensuring that this thing meets the standards that they need to make sure that Canadians are safe. They're not just going to say, 
okay, you know, put anything out there because, you, as I said, if it doesn't work, people will die. If it works the wrong way, it can damage your lungs. So we have both these challenges. We have now Health Canada's approved the designs and everything. And we're next week, we're actually going to, we, we built a lot of test prototypes because then we have to test how do we build them, how do we take them down. So we've done that. And now we're getting ready to start the full production run that we can ship. This is a perfect transition. You spoke about being on the phone with people from all over the world. One of the things that I, I mean, I'm an immigrant from South Africa. And, you know, the beautiful part about Canada is that we do have, you know, such a huge immigrant population. But the one thing that I think that Canadians don't do very well is I think that more so, definitely more so than the U.S., we have a very domestic mindset. And I think we don't think as globally as a, as a stereotype as some other places in the world. How important has your, I mean, I know that you have a global mindset, um, you know, based on what you've done, uh, based on your background and politics. How important is a, a global mindset for an entrepreneur looking to build a big business? And if it is, what have you learned about viewing the world through different cultures, never mind challenging your thinking, but different places in the world think completely differently about business as well. And is there, has that helped form a better view on how to build a good vision, how to build a good business for you? For sure, we're a global company. I mean, probably less than 3% of our sales are in Canada, but that's the nature of it. The medical field is Canada's maybe 2% of the medical, medical world's uh, business. So we've always, we didn't always, let me re rephrase that. When we got to manufacturing, we took this sense of let's spread our wings and start selling everywhere in the world. But when we first started at our foundations, we were importing and representing products in Canada. And I wanted to really build that out. And this is one of the things Chris and I debated. And Chris said, Frank, we should expand south. And I said, no, let's really win in Canada first and expand south. He was right. I was wrong. <laughs> okay. It was easier and a bigger, easier pickings down south in the U.S. market than up in Canada, just because they have a much bigger, even though they're 10 times our size, or even bigger when it comes to the medical device world and all that, their spend on medical products is much higher. So once we broke that barrier, we just really expanded like into the, and stepped into the whole world. And I would encourage anybody that wants to build a big business to have that. Obviously, you know, the younger people see the world through different lenses. They grow up with the internet. They grow up like a free flight, not a free flight, but a cheap flight. They can be in the heart of Africa next day. Like if I was to tell you I'm flying to Africa in three days, okay, forget COVID being now, but like, let's say it's non-COVID. You go, yeah, great. You're going to the heart of Africa. You know, 30, 40 years ago, people, where? That's, a, you know, how are you going to get there? Where are you going to stay? How do you figure it out? There's no internet. There's no nothing. So the world has changed. And if you're going into the world today, you better be thinking global if you want to build a big brand. There's, there's no way around that. And then, as you said, Elon, with respect to people's, different people's cultures, I think it's wonderful that we're different. And you have to go in there with the respect for other people's cultures. If you go in there thinking you've got the right culture and they're wrong, then you're not going to succeed. And, and that's not true anyway. So, you know, we don't have the right culture. How do you learn to do business in other places in the world and not make a mistake? I went to South Korea to sell one of our companies. I mean, I was the only six foot three white guy, you know, bald white guy in all of South Korea. And one of the things that I, I, I studied and I learned about some of the things that you just do and you don't do and, you know, how you accept a business card, how much thought process goes into understanding how to do business with others around the world, or you just kind of, act the same way kind of everywhere? No, 
you're right. If you things that would be culturally acceptable here might be a great insult to someone somewhere else. And you better know that and understand that. Because if you walk in there and you break a relationship, you know, or you you, you show disrespect for someone, especially Asian cultures, as you know, these are almost things you can't recover from. So I think we always try to approach everybody with a deep respect and, and not that we know better or that our way is right or that, and we were never really aggressive negotiators either. So we tried to listen and understand and learn from other people and really enjoy the culture too. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful thing to go around the world and meet people from different, different ways of doing business and understand that and, and partake in it. I, I think it's a, it's a great thing. I, I've really enjoyed it. And we do a tremendous amount of business in Japan very different than how we do business in the states uh, you said giving a business card if you uh, some ways people give me a business card in the states if you did that in japan and i've actually come to appreciate the way the japanese show respect and that and uh, learned from them and brought some of that into the way i behave if i could say that so uh, we've got a transition i know we talked broadly about politics earlier on but as an entrepreneur myself why i'm an entrepreneur is because i couldn't live a life where i couldn't have you know, immediate impact and be able to change things and, and will whatever I want in my head into existence. And I think that's what you've done within Bayless so, so effectively. I personally couldn't think of anything more frustrating than having to deal with politics. <laughs> so how does someone who is clearly a visionary, who clearly has an entrepreneurial spirit, who's able to affect change I'm not going to downplay it and say immediately, but if you want to affect change in your own business, you can, you can make that happen. How do, you, how do you possibly work through, which is what would obviously be a frustration, you know, getting into the political world and, and you still speak about it with, with Revere and, and, and something as, 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 as though it may have been frustrating, but you felt good about that experience, I guess. How do you do? How did you do it? Like, I'm just personally interested. <laughs> First of all, a lot of business people, business women, businessmen quit. They don't like politics at all. They try it and it just doesn't work for them. And I understand where they're coming from for exactly the reasons you touched upon. And even myself, I went in there and I think we have a lot of work to do to fix our democracy. There's a lot of work. We, we spend far too much time name calling and yelling at each other. So when I was there, actually, I worked with two people from the NDP party, two people from the conservatives, two people from the liberals and Miss May from the Green Party. I read the last 12 years of people's suggestions. How do we make this better, more productive and less nonsense? So I didn't come up with any ideas. I just read all of people's ideas and I said, I'll pick the low hanging fruit, like the no brainers, I thought. Let's try and make this happen. And then I reached out to people like-minded from the other parties and we put a package together and I was really looking for productivity. There's so many laws that need to be changed. There's so many things that we're behind in. You look at the internet and you look at digital government where we have what we don't have, what we need to put in place, the protections. And when you start to look at how they take our data, how they do it, you'd be shocked. I was shocked as I learned more and more. So I wanted to make these changes to make the whole government more productive and less yelling, less, less impolite than that. And I wasn't able to affect those changes. And then I made a decision, okay, you know what? I can't stay here like this. I can't be a part of it because I know I'm, I'm, I'm becoming a part of it. And because I wasn't able, I wasn't successful to make the changes. I decided, look, I'll just take a step back. doesn't mean I won't go back again, but I won't go back to do the same thing. So I didn't want to become part of the system, if I could say that. So to stay there, you had to become part of the system. And so to answer your question, 
I, I like being a businessman. I like being productive. And I think our system, the way it's designed could be better, but like all systems, it gets perverted over time and you need to hit the reset button and say, we, no, no, we're going back to this, this and this. That's what I was trying to do. And I may try that again, but I can appreciate that if a, a real business person would be find it very frustrating. I could see that. You leave the door open for a potential involvement in politics. How, how did, you know, hearing you speak about the frustration, how did you not get completely disenfranchised and said, screw this, I ain't doing that again? Well, you know, I think when it comes to a bit of your questions about nature and nurture and that, I think all of us have a calling inside of us. There's a little voice that speaks to us. And I think too many people don't listen to that voice or don't respect that voice or their, their friends say like, no, no, don't do this. You should do that. And you go, well, I kind of wanted to do this, but no, that's a dumb thing. So you don't do what you're meant to do or what you, what calls to you. This calls to me. Some people want to go and um, work in an orphanage somewhere in the world and, and that calls to them. And, and that's really important. Other people want to help the local soccer team. And, and coach their kids soccer. I think whatever calls to you, calls to you. And you don't need to, how do I say, defend it. That's what your calling is or what you feel you want to do in life. And I want to give back. And this is the way I'd like to give back. So perfect transition to nature and nurture. I mean, you, you, you've listened to my podcasts. And what's interesting is I lean, as you know, far more to the, 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 the nature side of it. And most of the people who I speak with don't agree with me. They think it's more even than I do. And you'd think that after speaking to as many people as I've spoken to, who I highly respect that it would transition me closer to their view. And it's done the exact opposite. Well, I, I came prepared for that. I, I was ready for that. So if I recall, you said you like basketball. Was it basketball you said you like? Um, yeah, I, I like, I'm a, I'm a huge UFC fan. But I love, I love all sports. But I think you said you, I think you're, I love basketball, but I could not be Michael Jordan. I, I could not be Michael Jordan. That's just, okay. That's that. okay. That, yeah. Wasn't in the cards for me. <laughs> I want to talk about that. I can, yeah. can I, or can I not be Michael Jordan? Let's, let's think about let's that. Let's do this. <laughs> I grew up in Scarborough and I always wanted to be a hockey player, but you know, I was never any good. I was just pure house league. So I didn't make any effort because, you know, I was very skinny and not particularly gifted and that I made no effort. Now, while I was growing up, a guy that's my age was growing up at about an hour's drive from where I grew up, same height, same size, middle-class family. And that guy grew up to become arguably the greatest hockey player that ever lived, Wayne Gretzky. And Wayne Gretzky, when you listen to him, right, what did he do? In your question of nature and nurture, I had talked myself out of it, just looking at myself. So how can I, how can I compete or what anything and as a boy? He didn't do that. Now, what does Wayne say? I read his book and his book says, you know, people look at me and say, man, this is God-given talent. This is nature. This is just God-given talent. And he goes, it's not God-given talent. He calls it Wally-given, Wally-given talent. Wally is his dad. And his dad, every year, would have to make an ice rink or bring him to the rink if he didn't build the rink. And Wayne played hockey four hours a day. And he said, in his book, he goes, you know, you see me skating down the ice and I get a bad pass and I just take it and keep going. And people go, what talent? That's amazing. He goes, it's not talent. He's my dad. We spent hours and hours and hours giving me a bad pass. So I learned how to do that. So. I reflected when you talked about a, a Michael Jordan, said, could I be Michael Jordan or could I be Wayne Gretzky? Of course, I can't be Wayne Gretzky. But I said to myself, what if I put four hours a day, years and years and years into this thing? For sure, I would be better than what I was. I might even made the all-star team. I might maybe even made a lower league or something like that. But that's the Michael Jordan of hockey. And that's him talking to you. So 
I don't think anybody can be Michael Jordan because Michael Jordan's Michael Jordan. That that job's taken. So I can't be Michael Jordan. Even LeBron James can't be Michael Jordan. Someone's already doing that job. But I I do think that there's a lesson in there. And I'm not arguing with you, is it nature or nurture? But it just made me reflect on that. And I took that lesson after I really understood. And I, by the way, I have a picture of myself with Wayne Gretzky, and it's a reminder. And I'm standing very straight, and my kids make fun of it and go, look, Dad, why are you standing so straight? And I say, well, that's Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> but that picture, as I'm standing straight, maybe I'm a millimeter taller than him because I'm trying to look as tall as I can or whatever. But it reminds me never to talk myself out of something. Can you be anything you want to be? I think it's both yes and no. You can be anything you're meant to be and that you truly want to be. A lot of people, you'll see them in your business. I want to be president of this. They want the title. They want the prestige. They want the pay. They don't want the job. They don't even think about the job. So when people say, I want to be Michael Jordan, they don't say, well, I want to practice basketball six hours a day for 20 years of my life and have my bones broken and fight for it and do this and all the sacrifices. They just, no, no, I want the glory and the pay and the money and all that. So I believe that you can be anything you truly want to be, but it has to be what you want to be. You can't want to be someone else. That job's taken. And you can't, what a lot of people do is fool themselves. Like you're an entrepreneur. I'm an entrepreneur because I had to do it. I just had to do it. And it was a calling for me. So I wanted to be one. That's the nature I'm talking about. It's why I'm, it's why it cemented my resolve even more is speaking to you. It is so clear to me that you have an energy that is consistent with the energy that I see in the successful entrepreneurs. I just, it's amazing to me and totally different walks of life, totally different backgrounds, different skill sets, introverts, extroverts, but there's this consistent energy I always see. I would say to you that that's something that you're, that's that little voice inside of you that you're born with, that you're, that someone says like, I want to be a musician. And there's a quote by Dizarelli, he's a British prime minister, says, most people die with the music still locked up inside of them. And so, and when they, they die like that, because they haven't decided what they truly want to be. So your question, can you be anything you want to be? You can, if you choose to be what you're meant to be. But if you say, I want to be Michael Jordan, no, you can't be Michael Jordan for two reasons. That job's taken and you just want to be Michael Jordan, the superstar. You don't want to be Michael Jordan, the guy that busted his butt day in, day out for years and years and years, didn't make the team in the first year of whatever, like all the, everything that that man went through, he just want his pay and his prestige. And I see this all the time in business. People say, I'd like this job. And I'm thinking, you would hate this job. You would kill yourself if I gave you this job. But they think they want the job because they just see the perks of the job. What I'm hearing so clearly from you, what you're really talking about is self-awareness, right? I mean, you have to layer in that self-awareness of what you probably should be doubling down on and knowing yourself and knowing the things that you, that you really are passionate about and not just caring about the title and the prestige and the money and just following that, that inner voice. You, you, you call it the inner voice. I might call that self-awareness. Yeah. It, you know, the Greeks call it, they said, know thyself, know who you are. So in a way, I think to answer your question, there is the nature of what you're born into. I, I don't know if you have children, Elon. I do. Yeah. I have two kids. 
Okay. So you need to have three to realize if you really want to win your argument, just have the third kid because the first kid, you, think, okay, you, don't, <laughs> you don't know that yet. But anyhow, you have the first child and you think, well, we did this right. We did this wrong. So in the second child, we'll try this and that. By the time you have the third child, you go, oh, okay. They're just born that way. <laughs> There's nothing. It becomes more apparent that parts of their personality are born into them and, and you cannot change that nature aspect of it. It's just who they are. So I think the third child really kind of wakes you up. If you thought before you might have had an effect, yeah, <laughs> you realize you had less than less. You, you, you secretly are, are are supporting my argument more and more here. Yeah, I am in a way, but I'm not I'm not arguing plus or minus for it. I'm, I'm sharing ideas. There's another one, too, which, again, it comes to understanding yourself and, and what you really want. There's a quote by Getty Lee. He was a lead singer of Rush, it was a big band years ago, huge band. And he said, we decided very young we were going to be musicians. We didn't know we'd be successful. We might have to have a day job and all that. But who we were, how we defined ourselves is as a musician. So like, if you could say to me, Frank, I'm a basketball player. You might be a lousy basketball player. But if you truly were, and let's say you, you said, oh, Frank, I'm a basketball player, and you went and played basketball four hours every day at the Y, and you were on these teams, and you worked your way up, you would be a basketball player. You may not be Michael Jordan. You may not be at his caliber ever. But you're defined by who you want to be and what you want to be. You're Elon Jacobson, the basketball player. That's there for you. You can actually do that if that's truly what you want to do. You, but you can't define the outside stuff. Like I said, I want to be a businessman. Well, okay, I want to be Bill Gates rich. Okay, well, that's Bill Gates rich. That's not businessmen. They're, they're two different two different things. I think that's the confusion that people see when they look at these high-profile people and aspire to to be like them. You know, I think find what you want to do and just really go f strong and hard for it. So I, I would say that it's, it's, it's a mix of both. Definitely a mix of both. So Frank, I know I have literally three minutes left with you. I promised you two o'clock and I, I'll, I'll stand by it, but I'm really curious. I mean, you've been, you've been successful in building businesses. You, you tried your hand at politics and, uh, you know, got elected. What's your Northern star today? I mean, what's the end goal for you at this point in your life? I'm not done. I got, uh, I have big, that's ass. why I asked the Northern star, <laughs> well, you know, there's an old saying, if, if you want to give up something, you tell everybody, if you want to go up, you tell no one, right? So if you want to give up smoking, tell everybody, cause then they'll yell at you every time you smoke. But if you want to go up slices, so you keep a few things, uh, hidden to yourself or I still have uh, major aspirations business wise, political wise, and, and other things uh, that I'm working on. I'm happy, uh, as you touched on, I, I make movies as a interest in my artistic outlet, and I'm working on another one. And I actually just literally, I'm going to give myself a plug. Like last week, uh, we were put on Amazon, I guess, because what's happened, we we're putting Amazon in the States and Canada and uh, Amazon Prime, because I, I guess with COVID, it's been great for the movie business for my movie, because I guess they worked out the B, A movies are all gone. Now they're looking at the, <laughs> the B movies are coming up. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. People are consuming a lot more content these days. There you go. So they need more content. But yeah, so I'm going to make more movies and I'm going to maybe go back into politics. and I'm going to work on building my business and that and try and contribute in a serious way to giving back to, to the world in, in the way that I want to do it. I appreciate it, Frank. And, and thank you so much for your time. I've I found this very interesting. And uh, I, I know you'd give me some advice prior to even filming, which I really appreciate as well. So thank you. Um, Frank, for, for, for those that want to follow along in your journey, you know, outside of just uh, going to your Wikipedia page from time to time, what's the best way that they could do that? Well, I still have my uh, my political Facebook page where I post. I don't post as much to it, but I, I 
if they want to follow what I'm doing, both in French and English, I'm posting on my Facebook page and I have maybe, I don't know, 6,000 followers there. I'm not, it's not huge, but they're, they're welcome to, to sign up and follow me there too and see what I'm up to. Again, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure and I really appreciate taking the time. Thank you, Alan. I've enjoyed it too. All the best. Cheers. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.